6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, The Hebrew Epistles. Well, we are beginning hour 20 of Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. And in this hour, we're going to focus on what are called the Hebrew Christian epistles. Or putting it another way, if you take the 13 Paul wrote, the ones that are left up to the book of Revelation are the ones we're now going to focus on. And they include the, the epistle to the Hebrews, epistle of James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude. The Hebrew Christian epistles are distinctive in that not one of them is addressed to a church, interestingly enough. And what's also disturbing to many is that some of the warnings we find in these epistles seem to be in contrast to some of the assurances that we received in the church epistles. You look at Romans 8 and you compare that with Hebrews 6 and 10, it can raise some questions. You take Ephesians 2 and Philippians 1 and compare that with 2 Peter 1 and it raises questions. So those are great discussion opportunities. But do understand that there really is no conflict between them. It may just seem that way on the surface. And whenever you think you found a contradiction or conflict, praise God. Because God will always reward the diligent. You get in behind that and you'll come out much better understood. But some of these are widely misunderstood, but there's not a retrograde here. Some people say, well, you know, that James was a rebuttal to Paul. No, James was written before Paul was, and it's not at all. It just, it reaches beyond. It goes in a different direction. So let's take with it, let's start with the Epistle of the Hebrews. This is one of the two greatest theological treatises in the New Testament. The first one being Romans, which we spent an entire hour on. We won't do that here with Hebrews, but we will focus on its distinctives, some of its distinctives. One thing you need to realize, Israel is not a subset of the nations, but a contrast and a focus. If you think of Israel and then all the nations as two in balance, you're closer to the perspective here. The epistle to the Hebrews stands as sort of the Leviticus of the New Testament. Basically, it's going to argue that Christ supersedes and fulfills all the elements of the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood under Moses, under it, and so forth. Something else you need to understand when you're reading the book of Hebrews, you need to visualize yourself as a Jewish Christian that had come to Christ during the first 70 years of this uh, time. In other words, the temple is still standing. Try to understand the peculiar predicament of a Jewish believer while the temple was still operating. You see, 
If you made yourself a Jew that has accepted Christ, but you now realize that you've previously been in, in a divinely appointed religion with divinely appointed priests officiating in a divinely appointed temple and accomplishing a divinely ordered service that had been ennobled through centuries. That's what you've given up. And you have to ask yourself, how could believing priests and Pharisees remain zealous of the law? You see, it was the Jewish religious world that crucified Christ and was presently repudiating Him. Understand the strange predicament. Realize that the persecutions during that first century didn't come from the Romans. It came from the Jewish leadership. So understand that. The church in Jerusalem had already lost Stephen. He was stoned, probably illegally, obviously, but he's still stoned. James, the leader of the church, had been killed in 62 AD, executed. And of course, there are many others. The churches in Galatia, all up north, all through Galatia, were in the same turmoil, being attacked by the local Jewish authorities. So as a result, many of these believers, Jewish believers, were tempted to go back temporarily to Judaism to avoid persecution under the mindset, gee, I'll, I'll stick with this so I don't get persecuted, and at the last minute I'll turn. The author of the book of Hebrews, now I happen to believe it was Paul, so I may misspeak. I'm going to try not to do that because that's prejudicial. There are some good scholars that think it was somebody other than Paul. I have my reasons, uh, and I think the majority of them think that Paul wrote it. But I'll try to refer to the author rather than Paul. But in any case, he's trying to combat possible apostasy by these believers. He wants to encourage them, rather than to go back to Judaism, to press on to spiritual maturity. He wants to comfort them in their persecutions, of course. And his method is to emphasize the superiority of the Messiah specifically against the three pillars of Judaism, which were the angels, that's a big deal in Judaism, the whole role of Moses, and of course the Levitical priesthood under Aaron. These are three places that he specifically points out that the Messiah eclipses all of these. He builds very, very, you also have to understand if it was Paul, he wouldn't sign it because he doesn't want to make that the issue. He doesn't set himself up as an apostle. He's simply arguing from the Jewish scriptures the way a rabbi would. This thing stands or falls on its rabbinical logic. He's going to deviate from his logical discussions on five occasions to issue special warnings. But once you recognize those warnings are there, the rest follows very, very logically. He first of all points out that Jesus is a new and better deliverer. The God-man is better than the angels. Angels are still just angels. And uh, he's an apostle, Jesus is an apostle better than Moses. Even as highly venerated as Moses was, the Messiah is higher. He's a leader better than Joshua. In fact, he's the one that fought the battle of Jericho, if you read the last few verses of Joshua 5 carefully. And Jesus is a priest better than Aaron. He's going to explain why in, in great detail. 
He talks about Calvary as being a better and newer covenant. It offers better promises, offers, has a better sanctuary, it's sealed by a better sacrifice, and achieves far better results. He hits each one of these as a, in, in a rabbinical style. And so our faith should be a true and better response. And then he has parting words to the whole thing. The Son of God is the final revealer. He's the heir of all things himself. Through the Son were all the ages made. He's the brightness of God's glory. This is in some respects similar to Colossians, except here he's not arguing to a Gentile. He's arguing in Jewish terms. He is the brightness of God's glory. He's the image of the Father. He upholds all things by his power. He made purification of sin. He didn't just cover it for a while like the Old Testament sacrifice did. He made purification for it. And he finally sits down on majesty on high. So this is, in other words, in each dimension here, is it's, is, it is as good as it gets. The Son is superior to the angels. How? By virtue of his deity, first of all, he created them in the first place. By virtue of his humanity. Now that may surprise you. But you see, the earth was given to Adam. So in that sense, Adam was even the lower of the angels, was superior to the angels, but he forfeited it to Satan. But Christ is getting that back on our behalf. It had to be a kinsman of man to take over the earth. That's why Jesus called the kinsman redeemer. Just being God wasn't enough. He had to be a kinsman of Adam to fulfill the situation. So humanity is crucial here. By virtue of salvation, he provided. None other provides salvation the way Jesus Christ does. That's a, no, angel, no angel can provide salvation. The Son superior by virtue of his deity. His position is unique. He's the head of the Davidic covenant. Angels worship the Son. He's the Son. Quote from Psalm 97. Angels serve the Son, according to Psalm 104. The Son is to rule the kingdom in Psalm 45. It's interesting how often he draws upon the Psalms, not just as a hymnal, but as authority. And that's, again, to, that's something a Jew would accept. Of course, the Son is the Creator, according to Psalm 102. These are quotes from Psalms, not from the Torah. And the Son is enthroned on the right hand of God, according to Psalm 110. And so, with the exception of the Davidic covenant in the second list here, all of these are quotes from Psalms. Son superior, his humanity he makes that point. See, he has sovereignty over the earth, was promised to man, not the angels. And God gave man dominion over the earth, and a man rules it. Satan does now, but a man will. Man lost it through sin to Satan and his angels. The Messiah regained dominion for man. And man will be associated with him, the Messiah, in ruling it. And of course, his superior over uh, salvation. He, 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 why? To manifest divine grace. And he quotes Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8. To overcome the prince of death, to free the believer from the fear of death, and to help man. The Son is greater than Moses, of course. You have to, to understand the logic, you have to understand how a Jew viewed Moses. The Son is greater because of his person and work, his position. And then he inserts a warning against disobedience. And he points out how they failed at Kadesh Barnea. Remember, they didn't, God had given them the land. They failed to take it and had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. The very people God rescued from Egypt blew it because they didn't enter into that which God had provided. And he's drawing a parallel here. That's exactly the mistake they're making in the book of Hebrews, is that they have been saved, but they're not entering into 
the benefit of their salvation. He points out that Jesus is a priest, but not after Aaron, which was temporary. He's after a permanent priesthood. He's got a better position. It's heavenly rather than earthly. He's a better priest because he's divinely appointed. And so again, he puts a warning there, progress to maturity. And uh, re returning to Judaism is not an option. That's, what, that's an option denied. We're going to see, he says there's a need for progression. You need to advance, you guys, beyond first principles. Repentance from dead works, commitment to the Messiahship, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment in the great white throne. These are issues that far transcend anything Judaism can offer. These people need to be settled in their hearts once and for all to advance to maturity. They're saved, but they're not progressing. They're dealing with milk, not the meat, so to speak. There is an option that is denied them. See, I understand, first of all, I believe they were saved believers. And some people try to argue, well, because some other problem. They say, these guys really weren't saved. No, they were once enlightened. They tasted of the heavenly gift. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit. They tasted the good word of God. They tasted the powers of the age to come. No, these were saved, but they were considering apostatizing. The option they do not have is to temporarily give up their salvation, go back to Judaism until the persecution subsides, and then be saved later. Okay? There are many people with that mentality even today in a, in a, in a different sense. See, there are only two options available. Either go back to Judaism, confirming their immaturity, and be subject to the judgment of 70 AD, physical death now and loss of rewards later, whatever. Or make their clean break from Judaism once and for all and press on to maturity. And then it does not mean they have to give up observing the feasts and so forth, but they don't do it under the law, they do it as a celebration. The responsibility of a believer to produce works which accompany salvation. You're not saved by works, but you have an obligation to have works that demonstrate, manifest your salvation. And he takes examples from nature. Rain falls upon all the earth. Some produce fruit, some does not, just like believers. Fruitfulness will be rewarded. Fruitlessness will be judged. Thorns and thistles are burned, but the land isn't, is the point he's making in 1 Corinthians 3 and elsewhere, and so it's similar to 3 and so forth. He talks a lot, chapter 7, about the priesthood of this strange character called Melchizedek that we were introduced in Genesis 14. Melchizedek, that we count, there was a priest and a king. That's different than the Mosaic world. Under Moses, the Levites were priests. Under Judah, it was the royal. They never mixed. Also, Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham. And here the writer makes a very strange kind of logic. You need to follow his logic. Levi had not been born yet. But he regards Levi, since he was in the loins of Abraham, as giving tithes also to Melchizedek. Since Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, that Melchizedek was higher than Abraham. Levi hadn't been born yet, so he was even more junior. The point he's making is that it was as if Levi is subordinate to Melchizedek because his great-great-great-grandfather gave tithes to Melchizedek. He's creating a hierarchy here. Also, Melchizedek has no genealogy. It doesn't mean he was, uh, didn't have a birth and death. It just means it's not recorded. It means there's, he, his position was independent of any genealogy. 
And he's timeless. He had no beginning or end recording. That's the point they're making in terms of the, the, being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And of course, Melchizedek was all-inclusive. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't a priest just to the Jews. He's a priest and king, period. And so it's a much broader concept. So he, Melchizedek, in a sense, is a type or a foreshadowing of the Son of God. Now, he's only a type. Uh, some people say he was Shem, but that's not true because we know genealogies of Shem's genealogy. Some people feel it was, it was an Old Testament appearance of Christ himself. No, it says in the scripture he was a man. And this is pre-incarnation, so, so uh, for what it's worth. Now, those are just interesting side issues. The main point is, is that Melchizedekian priesthood will replace the priesthood of Aaron. The Levitical priesthood could never achieve perfection. It was given for a purpose, but it could never achieve perfection. Another order would occur that Dave predict, David predicted in Psalm 110, another order which is non-Levitical. He's pointing out that Melchizedek is a higher order than Levi. The Le Levitical priesthood that the Jews are committed to was temporary. It was weak. It could not impart strength to fulfill its demands. And it could not bring perfection. It could offer remedies for having failed the law, but it couldn't give you the power to overcome, to keep the law. So we've got a better covenant. The Mosaic covenant was destined to be replaced by a superior one, according to Jeremiah 31. And the new covenant has better promises, better priesthood, better sanctuary, better sacrifice. Now, that's really, we really have the old covenant, called, what we call the Old Testament. The word testament and covenant is a little misleading, because we think of testament differently, but it's like old covenant, new covenant. The new testament is really the new covenant, if you will. A better sanctuary. See, the limitation of the old sanctuary, which was restricted and representative copy, was contrasted with the heavenly actual. He points out it was just a model that was given to Moses as a temporary uh, thing. Only one man out of one tribe, out of one nation and one race could enter, and only on one day in the year and not without blood. So the access there was a very, very restrictive one. Okay? It was temporary. It was limited. It was inadequate. And the mosaic was inadequate, required repetition. Animal blood. Sins were covered, not removed. That was a, was a temporary measure pointing to Calvary. Only obedience brings perfection, according to Psalm 40. And only the Messiah can impart the perfection. Mosaic sacrifices were never intended to be permanent. So there's a lot of contrasts here between the Levitical priests and the Messiah. Levitical had many priests. The Messiah has one. Levitical priests were always standing. There were no chairs inside the tabernacle. The Messiah is sitting. He's finished. The Levitical priests ministered daily. The Messiah administered on one specific day. Levitical priests had to repeat it all. Christ did it once and for all. To tell us die. It is finished. Levitical priests did many sacrifices. The Messiah did just one himself. Levitical priests were temporary. The Messiah is permanent. So those are the contrasts that the writer establishes in his letter. One covered the sins. The other actually took the sins away. Put an end of sins. And then he gets into, in chapter 10, the danger of willful sin. See, if they now apostatize from the faith and once and for all return to Judaism, there remains no more sacrifice for their sin. 
That's a heavy argument that's made in, in Hebrews 10. Why? Because it's a rejection of the work of the Trinity, not just the Holy Spirit, all three of them. God will judge His people. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Well, having gone through all that in chapter 10, we now get to this incredible chapter, the Hall of Faith. You remember Romans chapter 8, what a high point that was? The equivalent in Hebrews is chapter 11, called the Hall of Faith, where it speaks about Abel, whose blood, you know, he gave an offering with blood, which is the only way the offering was acceptable. Then we have Enoch, who had faith through fellowship. He didn't, he had, his fellowship was so close, he didn't die. God took him. And then we had Noah, who was obedient and thus saved his family. Every one of us, our descendants, we all have a common ancestor. It's not Adam, it's Noah. <laughs> and then, of course, Abraham. He departed from his home ground, a foreigner, has a miraculous birth of Isaac, and it's his belief in the resurrection of Isaac that uh, saves him. And uh, his willingness to sacrifice Isaac convinced God that he was. And then, of course, we had Sarah. Um, and uh, Isaac, and all the prophecies, and Jacob, and then we have Joseph and his two sons. It goes through these great, we call it the Hall of Faith, all the way through here. And then, of course, Moses, and uh, who uh, was hidden from the laws of Pharaoh, refused to be called a son, uh, the son of uh, Pharaoh's daughter, and so forth. And they kept the first Passover, you know the story in Exodus. And we go through Joshua, and Rahab, and Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. It goes through this whole lineup. But let's just, as it's good, we get to about verse 33, just give you a flavor of it. As he, he stops dealing with them individually, he starts dealing with them. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Who's he talking about? Daniel, you betcha. Quench the violence of fire, escape the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. It's understood that uh, Isaiah was sawn in half by Manasseh with a wooden saw. They were tempted, they were slain by, with a sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. What a climax. See, all after all that, they received not the promise, God having provided something, some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made complete, or perfect in the sense of being completed. So having said that, after a big sweep of Romans 11, I mean Hebrews 11, we now get to Hebrews 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we have five warnings in this epistle, danger of drifting, disobedience, not progressing towards maturity, willful sin, and then a warning against indifference. Remember I said there were three epistles that amplify Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk 2.4 saying the just shall live by faith. The just is defined by Romans. How shall they live? That's Galatians. By faith, the book of Hebrews. That verse is quoted as the cornerstone of all three of those epistles, so it's kind of interesting, I think. So Now we get to the epistle that's Yaakov's letter to the twelve tribes. And maybe say, what on earth are you talking about, Chuck? See, you don't know him by the name of Yaakov. The Hebrew Yaakov, which is the Greek Iacobus, English Jacob, or sometimes James. You know it as the Epistle of James, but he, his name was Yaakov. He was, one of, he was a half-brother of Jesus Christ. And by the way, we know that he was married. I'll come back to that. He was an unbeliever during the lifetime of Jesus. He became a believer after the resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 15. He was married. In 1 Corinthians 9, uh, Paul is arguing that it's okay to be married. James was, and Peter was, okay? It's interesting. There are people that try to say Jesus was married, and they just don't know their Bible. Because for a lot of reasons, that doesn't make sense. But not the least of which, if he was married, Paul would have made that argument in 1 Corinthians 9. But in any case, I won't go down that path here. That's another whole other discussion. But Yaakov, or James, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. It's interesting, when Peter was released from prison, he instructed them to tell James. That was his main concern. James was the one that issued the verdict of the Jerusalem council. He also gave the proclamation that authorized Gentile Christianity, so to speak. Paul reported to him when he arrived in Jerusalem. His name was used without permission by the Judaizers that is taken task in Galatians 2. He was finally executed in 62 AD, which is interesting that that is not mentioned by any of the other epistles, and it should have been, which means that they were all written before 62 AD. It's a very interesting argument for the early authorship of those letters. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 